end of the millennium. And we have timed that uh, moment to get to the very end of the Bible. We've been studying the book of Revelation for uh, a number of weeks since September. And uh, we finally got to um, uh, an epilogue, effectively. John has told all the main elements of the story that he wants to tell. If you've been here, you will have, uh, you will have heard those. But then um, there are these um, various sayings that are left at the end to uh, remind us very clearly of the importance of this book of Revelation. I'm going to read from Revelation 22, from verse 7. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard, uh, when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs are those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, I mentioned before that I love television adverts. I think my favourite at the moment, or one of my favourites, is that Guinness advert with the snails. People know what I'm talking about? The scene depicts an extremely excited crowd with bets being laid. There's a, there's a deafening noise. And uh, finally, various snails are placed on the starting line of a racetrack. And uh, the race is started and everything goes quiet, while the snails, of course, slowly and painfully begin their slimy pilgrimage towards the long-distance finishing line. And you gain the uh, strong impression 
that the silence of expectation that there is could easily decline into the silence of boredom. But then suddenly the snails take off like greyhounds. They sort of aquaplane down the straits. They lean into the bends like motorcycle racers. And the crowd erupts as the race is on. I don't know what it has to do with selling beer, but I really enjoy the advert. Actually, it seems to me that over the years, the church, in its view of uh, history, has, been the, uh, has, has done the precise opposite thing to those snails in the snail race. At the beginning, in the few years, generations, centuries after Jesus uh, rose from the dead, it seemed as this everything was moving supernaturally fast. In the first uh, a couple of hundred years after uh, Christ, um, everything was moving with great speed. There was real, eager expectation that Jesus could come again at any moment. History seemed to be moving as fast as those aquapining snails. But as the centuries rolled on, and he did not return, our understanding of the rate of progress of God's plan became slower and slower and slower. Once things may have appeared to be going at breathtaking speed, but today, most people, even uh, evangelical Christians, believe that history plods at the pace of a snail. Who of us here is not thinking quite realistically? It could be... It could be uh, Another thousand years at least before Jesus comes again. Passages like the one before us then make very, very uncomfortable reading in that sort of context. Three times in this passage, Jesus says, I am coming soon. But this, verse, this passage was written about 2,000 years ago. What are we to make of that statement. And one common interpretation of passages like this is that, is that this was just plain wrong. Suggested that both Jesus and his followers actually believed that he would return imminently and bring history to an end after just a short time, perhaps just a few years. And since he did not return, we should dismiss all the evidence in the New Testament for that imminent return as just erroneous. Now, it does have to be said, <coughs> I think, that if you read the New Testament, there is a strong sense that Jesus could have come at any time, uh, even quite soon after his death and resurrection. And I think there are times when it's fair to say that um, if the uh, writers of the New Testament had known quite how long it would be before Jesus returned, they would have phrased what they said slightly differently in order to explain to us in more detail this delayed return. But actually, they quite explicitly say that they are writing in ignorance of when he will return anyway. Even Jesus himself said that he didn't know when he would come again. It is no surprise if we find then New Testament writers writing in ignorance about when Jesus will come again, rather than explaining exactly when he would come again. 
They never say for certain that he will come immediately in the next couple of years. They say they don't know. Some people suggest that, uh, in fact, when you get statements about uh, Jesus coming again soon, as we get at the end of uh, the book of Revelation, um, it's simply because, as uh, Peter says in one of his letters, uh, with the Lord, uh, a, a thousand years is like a day. The last two millennia have been like nothing more than two days to God. Well, that's... Uh, uh, one element of the answer, I think. God doesn't work on the timescales that we, uh, we expect. But there is more to be said than that. Now, um, to understand what Jesus really means when he says, I am coming soon, we need to understand what the book of Revelation means by soon. Soon in the book of Revelation is not a statement about times and dates. It's a statement about the phase of history that we are in now. We are in the final phase of God's plan, which has so far lasted for 2,000 years. The, the whole book, if you look back at uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 1, begins by saying that uh, John is going to be shown what must soon take place. Place. And we've uh, found out, if you've been here over the uh, last couple of months, that what will soon take place is in fact all the events that have been happening throughout this last phase of history. Now the key uh, reason why it's described as soon is because in the Old Testament, the final phase of history was quite specifically uh, referred to as being at some point in the future. Not soon, but after many days or many years. Now these things are no longer firmly in the future. Just uh, to give you some idea of the difference that there is then that Revelation is trying to alert us to, it's worth looking at chapter 22, verse 10. Revelation often alludes to the book of Daniel, a great Old Testament uh, prophecy. And in Daniel 8.26, Daniel is told that about his vision, seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. But John, at the end of his prophecy, is told the opposite, isn't he? Verse 10, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of this book, because the time is near. Daniel was conscious he was writing for another time. John is being told he is writing for this time. This time which started in his day and will continue until Jesus uh, uh, comes again. When the Bible, when, the, when, when Revelation uses the word soon, it's not God in its mind a clock ticking around. It's got, in, it's got in its mind the purposes of God. We are in the final purposes of God and Jesus could come again at any point because there is nothing except the last events before, that, that happened just before he comes again left to 
to happen before finally history comes to an end. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. And even if 2,000 years has passed, there is still an imminence about that that Christians rightly need to feel and sense. There are not going to be years and years, uh, uh, centuries and centuries of further preparatory things happening. All that has needed to happen has happened in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now all that we wait for is his return. How then should Christians respond to that? That's the key thing that is, uh, that is brought out in this, uh, this final part of the final chapter. How Christians should live then if Jesus could come at any moment? Actually, I, although this is um, uh, rather bitty, this section, I think you can detect something of a pattern around these various, uh, the three times when Jesus says he is coming soon. He says it verse in, first in verse 7, then he says it again in verse 12, and then he says it to end the whole of the, the book, effectively. And uh, from verses 7 to 11, we find that uh, John is describing, in fact, how to respond to the message of the book of Revelation. Then from verses 12 till uh, uh, 19, uh, we find that, in fact, we move, the focus moves as to how to respond to the person of Jesus himself before finally we are reassured once again Jesus is coming soon. So I want to just spend a few minutes then looking, first of all, how we should respond to this message of Revelation. If you haven't heard the rest of it, I do apologise, but I hope that you will, uh, you will grasp something of, uh, of that, uh, 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 how we need to respond, and then we will move on to seeing how we need to respond to Jesus himself. First of all, to, the, to how should we respond to the message. First thing that... Uh, uh, we need to learn is it's very easily easy to respond inappropriately. John, who's better informed than anyone else, gets it wrong. I, John, verse eight, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and I'd heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, "Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book." Worship God. It is a universal tendency of mankind to worship the wrong thing, even believers. And that tendency is actually at its most dangerous amongst people who love God's truth. John is tempted to bow down before the feet of this messenger rather than the author of the message. I, I, I fear that Some, sometimes evangelical Christians are particularly prone to that. It's almost the, the, la, the devil's last trick. If he can't stop uh, the gospel being, being preached, then he will make the, the people, in fact, respond to the gospel by worshipping the person who proclaims it. 
It's a terrible travesty of the truth, isn't it? Churches, churches which teach the Bible need to be very, very conscious that we can worship the wrong thing. Sometimes churches seem to almost worship the Bible. Remember, the Bible will be a useless lump of paper in heaven. It will be thrown aside, tossed aside, because we have no use of it. But what will be worshipped in heaven is God and Jesus. Because the Bible is only a book to point us to God. Sometimes people tend to worship the preacher or some great charismatic leader. It would be terrible, wouldn't it, if you've heard this series in, in Revelation, to go away thinking what a great series that was. Because you see the very nature of the book is to call us to go away saying what a great God we have. Do not do it. It is so easily easy when we get excited about the nature of the message that God is giving us to direct our worship in the wrong direction. And the devil loves it. He's got us. Now, do not bow down before anything, not even an angel. Worship God. First lesson then, how to respond to this book. Worship God, says the angel, nothing else. Second lesson I find very, very difficult to put into, into words. Perhaps uh, uh, the best way we could describe the uh, second element of response to, this, to the message of this book is, is that we should respond in, in eager anticipation. I think it's better if I explain it rather than trying to, to summarise it. First of all, there's this verse that we've already looked at. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. We've already mentioned, haven't we, that Daniel was to seal up his prophecy because the time was not there yet. But now, says John, from the moment that I write this, this is a public document. This interprets the world not of the future, but of the world we live in now. These events are happening now, he says. The, 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 the uh, uh, events that are described that haven't yet happened are not far away. They are just over the horizon. As Christians, we are called to live in the full light, then, of this book. It is an open book for us to, to constantly meditate on and be aware of. You know, I find that many Christians live relatively grey lives. You know, they plod on with their routine, they do the right thing, they are orthodox in their beliefs, but very often they are, they are quite colourless. The book of Revelation is like, uh, like, like the painting of a great master artist. Now, I remember my art teacher at school once telling me that I wasn't using colour properly, because uh, what I would do if I was painting um, someone's dress, for instance, was just to get one colour of blue and splurge it all over the, 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 uh, the dress. 
And uh, I remember he told me to look at a number of paintings by great artists. I remember especially uh, having to examine a, a purple dress in a painting by Renoir. And I, I remember my art teacher saying, find out how many colours are in that plain purple dress. As I looked, I was amazed that a garment that I had just initially seen as one colour was actually constructed of an enormous range of colours and shades to get the full beauty of that dress. So that's what Revelation does. It shows uh, this world in all its many colours and shades. It says, do not look at this world monochromatically. This world is, uh, is, is, a, is a much richer place, a much more vivid place than that, in terms of both good and evil. This world is full of, of shades of dark and shades of light. This world has the, the terrifying primary colours of evil and death. They are described in Revelation. It has the rich living hues of forgiveness and love and life. It has the flames of uh, judgment and the gold of the new Jerusalem and the br bright green of the tree of life. Revelation says, see those colours. See the vividness of this world that we are living in. Live lives with this book open. Don't seal it up. If you seal it up, you will only see the surface of this world and you will live in shades of grey. See what's really going on in this world and live it with eager sense of the joy of eternity. Well, there's another element to this, this, this eager and it's really quite um, disconcerting and, and hard, I think, to understand. Verse 11 continues, after saying, don't seal up the prophecy of this book, it says, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Most of the Bible's constantly calling people to change, isn't it? Most of the Bible's constantly saying, repent, turn around. If you are doing evil, stop doing it. Why does the book end then by saying effectively leave people to their own destruction? I don't think this text is a text forbidding the church to engage in evangelism. Jesus himself said that the call to repentance would go on till the very day that he returned. But this text is saying that we are very close to a moment when it is too late. In fact, it's saying that there is nothing new going to happen now which will change people. Nothing new at all. If you look at the Old Testament, it's constantly saying the nations may be going their own way now, but one day something wonderful is going to happen when people from every tribe and nation will come back to God. But that wonderful thing has happened now. Jesus has died and has risen again. Jesus has sent his disciples out into the whole world. 
Now, there are people from every tribe and nation worshipping Jesus. And people who have chosen not to cannot expect anything new to be just around the corner. Christians must accept that. People who are making their choices now will find that their choices are being set in stone for all of eternity and there is nothing anyone can do about it. We must let people have the dignity of making their own decisions. There is going to be no new phase of history. No second chance. We are close to the end. That's how we are to respond to this book, then. Respond by worshipping God, not the book or the messenger. And respond by recognising that this book shows us the world as it really is, shows us Jesus who could come at any moment and warns us that there is a time that comes which is too late for people to change their minds. But then it moves on from verses 12 onwards to uh, focusing on how we should respond to Jesus himself. And I just want to look at that uh, all too briefly. First of all, we find uh, that in fact an authentic response to Jesus is all about accepting things from him. Accepting gifts from him. Accepting his gift of forgiveness for a start. Blessed, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes, it says. Enigmatic little phrase, that, which we wouldn't understand unless we'd read through Revelation and remembered in chapter 7, verse 14, Christians are described as those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Terribly incongruous picture, isn't it? But it is saying that Christians are people who accept that Christ's death, Christ's shed blood, was for their forgiveness. He paid the price that should have been theirs. And they accept that, in a sense, by washing their robes in his blood. And by some extraordinary miracle that Purcell could never repeat, washing the robes in blood makes them white. So by an extraordinary miracle in the heart of God, coming to Jesus and saying, please forgive me, I see you died for my sins, makes us forgiven by God. We need to accept, then, this free gift of forgiveness from Jesus Christ. The second element that we, uh, of, of this response to Jesus is, that, is, again, just accepting something, this time accepting his gift of life. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life may go through the gates into the, into the city. Or verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, 
Let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Vivid pictures there to show that those who come to Jesus, those whose hearts have been transformed by Jesus, are given new life. Without that, we lead what's little more than a living death. With that, we lead a life which begins now and will one day flower in all its beauty in all eternity. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. To respond to Jesus is all about accepting things, you see. Accepting his forgiveness. Accepting that he miraculously gives us new life. And accepting the gift of his word. Verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. These are awesome words, aren't they? They refer immediately to the book of Revelation, but because Revelation is the summation of all the truth of the Bible, they also refer to the Bible in general. God has revealed his purposes to us in the Bible. We are honour-bound to accept his word. Where there are mysteries, says John, we are not to speculate. We are not to add things that the Bible does not see fit to tell us. Where there are truths plainly taught, says John, we are not to deny them. Or ignore them. They are vital truths that God gives us. The consequences of not accepting that are very dire. So as we come to the end of the book of Revelation and the end of a year, a century, a millennium, we are called to live lives which are different which respond authentically to the message of this book. To live lives that eagerly expect that Jesus could come at any moment, even if he does not come for a thousand years. That is not because he cannot. He could come tomorrow. I won't be surprised if people are still reading their Bibles in a thousand years' time but neither will I be totally surprised if in fact the fireworks that are due to be set off on the 31st of December never get ignited. That's the life we need to live. Lives that respond to Jesus authentically, accepting the things he offers, forgiveness, life, his word to guide us. You know, there's a story of a godly saint who uh, sought to lead his life like that. And every night when he went to bed, he would close his curtains and he would say, maybe tonight, Lord, you will come. And then every morning when he woke up again, he would open his curtains and he would say, maybe today, Lord, you will come. And he didn't die disappointed. 
He didn't die thinking that he'd been betrayed. He died satisfied because he had lived his whole life making sure that his conscience was clear before God every day, leading every day of his life to the full so that at the end of every day he could be ready to meet his Saviour. What about that for a New Year's resolution then? Lead lives like that. Lead lives that can say from our whole hearts, uh, as Jesus says in verse 20, yes, I am coming soon. Lives that can say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this book. Many of us here have been studying it for months and we thank you for the many ways in which it has helped us. We pray that we would live with this book open in our hearts. And Lord, especially for the coming year, that we would live as those who are prepared every day to meet you. Help us to be those who have open hearts that can accept your forgiveness, your life and honour your word. Please, Lord, we pray. Help us to be those who are found worthy of you in the year 2000. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.